Good morning again. You know, funny thing that I uh, had realized. Uh, so I, you know, that you know how you're supposed to say he is risen, and then how do you respond? He is risen indeed. I didn't know that that was a call and response thing until I was about maybe 22, 23 years old, and I was at my church. And uh, I'd grown up in the church, and I had no idea where I missed this. But somebody came up to me at church, and they said, "He is risen, Pastor." And I said, "Yep, he has." And they were like, well, you're supposed to say something back to me. I said, what am I supposed to say back? And so it wasn't until I was about, I was just talking to some people in the cafe. Today was the day where they figured that out. And so uh, let's try this again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Praise God. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. And uh, if you have been attending for a while or maybe you recently started attending, maybe you're here just visiting family and you came to church today, I believe that God has you here for a reason. And uh, he wants to do something in your life today. And so I'm so grateful that you are uh, joining us today at church. Before we jump into the message, I, I know we've prayed a couple of times already, but I want to I just want to ask the Lord to open up our hearts and our minds to receive what he has for us this morning. Can we do that together? Heavenly Father, we love you and and we are for you. We want to be changed by you. We want what you want. And so, God, I pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds to see what your spirit is doing, and to uh, just to be moving along with what it is that you want to teach us. And I pray that if there's anything that's highlighted in our life that we need to get rid of, or maybe some thinking that has just gone bad, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to clean that out, Holy Spirit, that you would work that out in us today. We celebrate you. We love you in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Well, there's a doctor who stepped into his office to have a conversation with his patient. And he uh, steps into his office and he looks at his patient and says, I, I've got good news and bad news. What do you want first? He said, well, give me the good news. He said, all right, the good news is you have 24 hours to live. He said, that's good news? What on earth could be the bad news if that's the good news? Tell me the bad news. And the doctor says, well, I should have called you yesterday. <laughs> yes. There was a doctor, uh, you know, a, a, a patient was finishing his eye surgery and the surgeon came in after the eye surgery, and he asked the patient if he wanted the good news or the bad news first. And the patient said, well, give me the good news first. So the surgeon tells him, well, you're getting a new dog. That took me a while, too. A seeing eye dog, and he's blind now. You got it? I say it's connecting now. Some of you are okay. That was a little dark, Pastor. Let's, let's move on to something happy. No, we, we have been in the midst of a series called Good News. And uh, the good news in the Bible, the New Testament and the Greek, the word for gospel literally means good news. It was a declaration, a proclamation of good news. It was a heralding out that went before an emperor or went before a ruler, but it declared good news. And so the word gospel means good news. So the question that we've been asking for the last couple of weeks is what is the gospel? What is the good news? And we've been taking this from uh, Acts chapter 2, where we see the very first gospel sermon ever preached on the day of Pentecost when God's people are filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter stands before thousands of people in Jerusalem, and he delivers the first gospel message. And as a result of this gospel message, 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus on this day. And as Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, he breaks the gospel down into four parts or four pillars. And they are this. And we've been talking about them throughout the series. The first pillar is the incarnation. The good news is that Jesus came 
to be with you. He was born a baby in Bethlehem. God came in the flesh to be with you. The second part of the gospel is the crucifixion, that Jesus died to forgive you. The third part of the good news is the resurrection, that Jesus rose to give us new life. And the fourth part of the gospel, it doesn't stop at his resurrection. The fourth part is that he is exalted to heaven. He ascended to heaven so that he could send us the Holy Spirit to give us victory. That, in a nutshell, is the story of the good news, the story of the gospel. Jesus came to be with you. He died to forgive you. He rose to give you new life. And he ascended to heaven to give you victory and send the Holy Spirit to us. So today, on Easter Sunday... We're obviously going to be talking about the third part of the gospel, which is the resurrection. And what we have to understand, what we have to recognize is that the resurrection is the crux of our faith. Everything hinges on whether or not Jesus really did rise from the grave. Because if he did, if Jesus really rose from the grave, then he really was the son of God. He really did die for the sins of the earth. He really did give you new life. He really did empower you with the Holy Spirit. And he's got a future and a purpose. And he's got, uh, he's got a plan for your life. If Jesus rose from the grave, then it's all true. He really is the son of God. But if he didn't rise from the grave, then let's all just go home. Let's stop the charade. Let's stop pretending here at church on Sundays. This is the crux of our faith. And so the question that we all have to ask ourselves, and maybe you've already asked asked yourself this question, is did Jesus really rise from the dead? Who do I believe Jesus is? Now, perhaps you grew up in an environment like myself. I grew up going to church. And and perhaps you grew up in an an environment where where people just told you, that you just had to have faith. You just got to believe. Well, how do I know that Jesus rose from the dead? How do I know that he even existed? How do I know that God loves me and he died for my You just got to have faith. You got to just believe. Just check your brain at the door and just trust what I'm saying. Just believe it, right? Just have faith. And I grew up in somewhat of an environment like that. In fact, when I was a kid, I remember my pastor teaching a message about faith. And to illustrate the point of faith, to illustrate his sermon, he played a clip from the movie Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade. Anybody seen this movie? You know what clip I'm talking about? It's the scene where Indiana Jones is going through these three traps in an an attempt to retrieve the Holy Grail. And he gets to the second one, and it's this giant chasm that he has to cross. There's nothing on the sides to use. Uh, It's too far to jump. He's got to get to the other side in order to get to the chasm, in order to, to get to the Holy Grail. And he looks at his little notebook, and the little notebook says that he has to take a leap of faith. And so what does Indiana Jones do? He closes his eyes, takes a deep breath, and just takes a step out into the chasm, into the unknown where, oh, miraculously, an invisible bridge catches him, right? And he goes, oh, that's cool. That's that's nice, an invisible bridge there. But the concept is this. The message that the scene is sending is that it's suggesting that faith is making a decision despite the lack of evidence. That you don't need evidence, you don't need proof, just blindly jump into it, jump into this decision. But here's the truth, and it's a refreshing truth, is that God does not expect you to make a decision about Jesus without first looking at the evidence. So what evidence do we have to support that Jesus was really God and that he rose from the grave? What I'm about to talk about for a little bit is a practice called apologetics. 
I don't know why it's called apologetics. It makes it sound like I'm apologizing for something that I didn't do. But apologetics is the justification uh, through is, is, a, is justifying a position through reasoned arguments. And normally I don't talk about apologetics that much in church because I genuinely don't believe that anybody can be argued into faith. Have you ever tried to argue with somebody on Facebook? Huh? How does that how does that end normally? Not so good, right? If anything, you are more fortified in your position and they're more fortified in their position and never ends well. I don't think that somebody can be argued into their faith. However, I do think that the bit of evidence we're going to talk about today is important and it's been overlooked when we use the Bible to talk about Jesus. Did you know that science and faith are not at odds with one another? We, uh, many people pit those two things against each other. That It's either science or it's either faith. You've got to pick which side you're on. And I'm convinced that science actually supports the claims of the Bible. But science can only take us so far. Because science answers a different set of questions, doesn't it? Science a- answers the questions like when and how. It can't answer the questions who and why. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's pretend that I baked a cake. And uh, nobody knew I baked this cake. I baked this cake and I anonymously mailed it to a scientist. And the scientist opens up the box. He would look inside the box and he would probably be able to tell you how the cake was made. What's in it? What are the ingredients? What temperature it might have been cooked at? He could probably tell you how the cake was made. He could probably even give you an estimate of when the cake was made. But only the creator of the cake could tell you who made it and why I made it. I made the cake, and I did it as a gift for somebody. And in the same way, the universe works the same way, that only the creator of the universe can tell us who made it and why he made it. And here's the claim of the Bible. The claim of the Bible is that God has done just that. He has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. Hebrew says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, that he is the radiance of God's glory, that when you look at Jesus, you see God. And so God revealed himself to mankind to show them the purpose of life, to let them know who was behind the curtain, who it was that created the universe, And why he created it. Did you know that scientific evidence is not the only kind of evidence that we have? We also use historical evidence. For instance, when a trial goes to court, the jury is presented both scientific evidence, right? They they are presented maybe with fingerprints and DNA. But the jury is also presented historical evidence, there's questions that they ask, when, when, where were you at this time? Or they listen to the eyewitness accounts of people who saw the event. This is all historical evidence. And every time a jury reaches a verdict, they're taking a step of faith based upon the evidence that has been presented to them. They weren't there. They don't know what happened, but they have a historical record. They have historical evidence to base their decision off of. And so every time a jury reaches a verdict, it is a step of faith based on the evidence. And so I want to present to you just some evidence of the resurrection. But before I do, we need to understand the validity of the Bible. There's no serious historian who would deny the existence of Jesus. 
And we have historical evidence from outside of the Bible that speaks to the life and death and even the resurrection of Jesus. But most of the historical evidence that we have comes from the New Testament itself. Now, hold on a sec, Pastor. You might be arguing, how can we use the Bible to prove the Bible? How do we know that the Bible is reliable? It was written so long ago. How do we know that it hasn't been changed over the years to support someone's insidious agenda? And we know that this isn't the case because of a science called textual criticism. Is it okay if I get a little nerdy on you this morning? All right. Textual criticism. This is what it is. It examines the number of copies of early documents that are available to us today. And it also considers the time gap from when the original document was written to the earliest manuscripts that we have. So basically, this is what textual criticism looks at. Basically, the rule of thumb is the more manuscripts that we have and the earlier the time gap or the shorter the time gap, the less doubt there is about the original documents. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me so far? I'm going to give you some examples. So let's compare the Bible with other early writings. These are widely used in schools and universities. Uh, The first one that we can look at is the Greek historians Herodotus and uh, Thucydides. They, uh, from the time that the original manuscript was written to the earliest copies we have, the time gap there is 1,300 years, and we only have eight copies of those manuscripts. However, these historical documents are used worldwide in schools and universities, and they are taken as fact. Uh, Roman historian Tacitus, there's a thousand years between the original manuscript and the earliest copies, and we only have found 20 copies of Tacitus' writings. There's Caesar's Gallic War. There's a 950-year gap between those writings, and we only have 9 to 10 copies. Livy's Roman history, again, a 900-year gap, and we have about 20 copies. Now, let's look at the New Testament in comparison. The New Testament, there's only a 30 to 310-year gap between the original manuscript and the earliest copies that we have. And we have 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. This is what Professor F.J.A. Hort, he's one of the greatest scholars in the area of textual criticism. He wrote this about the New Testament. He says, In the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. It is a standout. It is the major rule to the exception. There is nothing like the New Testament in ancient writings. It stands alone. And it's safe to assume that the eyewitness accounts and the New Testament are accurate and reliable. And by the way, we have four separate gospels, four separate accounts of the same death and resurrection of Jesus. So presented with this evidence, talking about textual criticism. Now, the the question that we have to answer now is who was Jesus? Who was he really? Was he really the son of God? Who was resurrected or was he just a good moral teacher? And what evidence do we have for the resurrection? And what does the resurrection mean for us today? Well, let's turn to our very reliable New Testament. Matthew chapter 28. It'll be on the screen as well, but I'm going to go ahead and turn there. Matthew 28. Last service, it took me a long time to get here, but aha, I'm there. Matthew 28, we're going to read 1 through 15. After the Sabbath, 
At dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. Imagine that moment. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. In fact, I was in Israel in 2000, I believe it was 2011, and I was in Tel Aviv singing with my guitar on, the, on a street corner. We were doing kind of a, a ministry trip, and I'm, I'm singing a song about Jesus, using the name Jesus in my song. And this Jewish woman comes up to me, and she says, why are you singing about Jesus? I said, this is Israel, isn't it? I was confused, a young 19, 20-year-old. This is Israel, right? Like uh, Jesus lived here, right? She goes, well, we believe in, we worship God, we worship Yahweh, but, but we, we, don't rec- we don't recognize Jesus as the Son of God. He didn't rise from the dead. And so they, they still believe this to this day. But the four bits of evidence that we have that come from this text, and some others that don't come directly from this text, but the four pieces of evidence that we have of the resurrection of Jesus is, number one, Jesus' absence from the tomb. According to the New Testament, The women went to the tomb, and they found it empty with the stone rolled away. Now, this stone would have been two to 4,000 pounds, one to two tons, and it was rolled away out of the tomb, and they were sitting on top of it. Now, some would argue, well, perhaps the authorities stole the body. And if that was the case, then the question you have to answer is, why wasn't the body presented or produced at the proper time? Some have also said, well, maybe robbers stole the body. But if that was the case, the text tells us that as the women went into the tomb, they saw the grave clothes still in the tomb. And the grave clothes would have been the only thing of value for a robber to steal. The text also tells us that Jesus' burial headpiece was folded and and put in its place. That Jesus actually took the time to fold his headpiece And so the first bit of evidence that we have is the absence from the tomb. The eyewitness accounts that the body was not there. Jesus was not in the tomb. The second piece of evidence is Jesus' presence with his disciples. According to eyewitnesses, Jesus appeared to different groups of people on over 11 occasions over a period of 40 days after his resurrection. Acts 1-3 says this. After his suffering... 
He presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul is referring, when he says abnormally born, he's referring to the, the method of his, his, of his salvation, uh, where after the resurrection, on the road to Damascus, he meets the resurrected Jesus who blinds him and he falls off his donkey. And so he is alluding to the way in which he got saved. But Jesus was with his disciples, for, with, was with groups of people for 40 days after his resurrection. And there is eyewitness accounts and historical records of this happening. The third bit of evidence is the transformation of the disciples. The Bible says that the disciples scattered after Jesus' death, and they were timid, and they were disillusioned because their leader was dead. They were afraid, and they went into hiding. But after Jesus appears to them, suddenly the disciples go from these timid, disillusioned followers to bold and fearlessly preaching that Jesus was alive. In fact, almost all of the disciples were brutally executed for their claim that Jesus was alive, that all of them suffered horrible deaths because of their faith in the resurrection of Jesus, claiming that it was the truth. Peter, uh, one of the disciples, he was crucified upside down at his request because he didn't want to die the same way as, as his Lord. Andrew was also crucified. Thomas was pierced through with spears by four soldiers. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. James was stoned and then clubbed to death. Matthias was buried alive. Philip, Bartholomew, and Simon the Zealot were all murdered. You see, all of these men died because they had seen the risen Savior, and they were convinced of their message that the gospel was the truth. That the risen Jesus, he's, that he's alive and what they've seen is true. They were filled with boldness and confidence to the point where they were willing to take it to their grave. And the last bit of evidence that we have is that it's still happening today. Today, there are over 2.4 billion self-professing Christians in the world. And many of these Christians, like myself, uh, claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And I could tell you many stories where I... I was aware of God's presence at work in my life. And this happens because it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the promise of the Father. And he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for his arrival. And by the way, we're going to talk more about this next Sunday as we talk about Jesus' ascension and exaltation. But the, word, the Holy Spirit to this day is still connecting the followers of Jesus with the presence of God. And millions and millions of people all over the world will tell you that they have met Jesus in some form or another because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's still happening today. So if Jesus really did rise from the grave, what does this mean for humanity? What does it mean for you and I? How should we respond 
to this, if we were to truly believe it. Well, this is what it means. I've got three things for you this morning. If Jesus really did rise from the grave, it means you and I have been given new life. We have new life. Did you know that Jesus didn't just save you from something? He saved you into something. He didn't die only to save you from eternal punishment and and an eternity separated from God. Although, praise God, we are saved from hell. We are saved from eternity separate from God. But he saved us into a new life, into a life that is uh, filled with the presence of God, that's filled with his joy and his love all around us. He saved us into a new life. Romans 6, 4 says this. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If you were here for week one of this series, I talked about the bad news. The bad news is because of the fall of man, because of Adam and Eve, their sin entered the world. And as a result of sin, you and I are born to this world with a tendency for evil is a tendency for bad things. You could see this uh, in, in our in our children. Even as you as you watch children grow up, you could see what's the first two words they memorize: mine, no. Right? They, that we we grow up into this world with a tendency for bad, and this is not a popular message. Our culture would tell you you're a good person. That deep down everyone is good. You can be the best version of you that you can be. Go to a Tony Robbins uh, convention. Go read some self-help books. Get a hold of something and just be the best version of yourself can be. You can do it. You're a good person. But the Bible tells us something different. The Bible says that our hearts are deceitful. And that us on our best days, our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to God's. That we cannot earn our salvation. At the end of your life, you are not going to stand on a cosmic scale. We often think that if I've done more good things than bad things, then I'm going to stand on the scale. And congratulations, you did more good things than bad things. Ding, ding, ding. You're the next contestant on come on into heaven. You did it. You made it. You were good enough. But unfortunately, the bad news is we are born with hearts that have been corrupted. And because of our sin, we are deserving of death. The worst part about the bad news is we are powerless to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to change it. We can try and try and try and be the best versions of ourselves that we can be. But it all falls completely short. But this is what Ezekiel 36 prophesied years and years, hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart. I will remove you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, this was prophesied long ago that God says what Jesus has done is through his resurrection. He has removed the heart of stone. The hard hearts that are disobedient to the ways of God, that that desire things that are not of God. He has removed that heart and he's given you a heart of flesh, one that beats and is moved by the spirit and, and wants the things of God and moves towards God. This also means that you've been given new life. It also means that you are not the same person after meeting Jesus, that whoever you were before Jesus, whatever you've done. It has been forgiven, and you are a new creation. God is changing you. He's turning you 
upside down. Are we still going to struggle with sin? Do we still struggle with sin after receiving Jesus? Yes, we do. But this means that you're on a different trajectory. You are on a trajectory that is heading towards becoming like Jesus, not moving away from it. Maybe you've heard the phrase, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's not what Paul said. When Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, when he wrote to the church in Corinth or Philippi, what did he say? He didn't say to the, to the sinners in Ephesus, to the sinners in Corinth, what did he say? He said to the saints, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Corinth. This means that you have been given a new nature, that your life, your old life has been dead and buried with Jesus. And now you share in his resurrection. He's given you a new nature, one that desires the things of God. You are not just a sinner saved by grace. You are now a child of God. You are a saint. Yes, we still occasionally struggle with sin, but we are saints that are on trajectories towards looking more and more like Jesus, allowing the Lord to renew our minds and become more and more like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. It means that the old you doesn't exist anymore. That is not who you are. You are not defined by your past. You are not defined by your mistakes. Instead, you are now defined by the person of Jesus and the forgiveness that he has given you. You have been given a new life through the resurrection. It also means, number two, if the resurrection is true, you've been given a new community. A new community. Jesus' resurrection made it possible to belong to God's family. In Genesis, if you follow the storyline of the Bible, it's remarkable how many parallels there are. And in Genesis, we see that God chose to reveal himself to the nations by blessing one man's family. He came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a multitude and I'm going to bless your family. Abraham's family would grow into the nation of Israel. And God chose to bless the nation of Israel and to be with the nation of Israel. So they would carry the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant wherever they went in the tabernacle. And God would be with his people. But he chose to bless a specific people so that the nations around would look at Israel and say, they have something that I don't. There is something special about this nation. There's something special about Israel because they have God with them. Here's the trouble. The trouble was being a part of Israel, being a, a Jew at the time. It was a fairly closed group because you had to follow Jewish law. You had to be circumcised and you had to obey the law that was given to Moses. But when Jesus died, he fulfilled the old law. We talked about this last week, how the curtain had been torn in two. That all the wrath of God was poured on Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And so the old law has gone away so that God could bring about a new law. That was open to everyone. And so now followers of Jesus were all members of this family that is defined by values of forgiveness and love and restoration and joy and peace and kindness and goodness. That when people look at the church, when they see the body of Christ, they are supposed to see Jesus himself, the hands and feet of Jesus. Now, does the church get this right all the time? Absolutely not. Unfortunately, we live in a culture where 
the church is actually probably more criticized nowadays, and we are known more for what we hate and what we are opposed to than what we are for and what we stand for. But the reality is, is when you said yes to Jesus and you recognize that the resurrection was for you, you became part of a family that has been separated from the rest of the world that is defined by love and forgiveness, restoration. And it is for the purpose of the rest of the world, the nations, to look at the followers of God, to look at the people of God and say, there is something about this group of people. There is something about Christians, something about the children of God that are different from the rest of the world. Church, we have to step into this more. As we, step, as we go further into 2023, as we reach out into this chaotic future that we are in, we are in just a crazy time in our culture, and the church needs to be defined once again by the values that Jesus modeled for us. You have been saved into a community, and believe me, as, as somebody who not all my family follows Jesus, not all my family is walking with Jesus, I can tell you that there, I have relationships in the church that are thicker than blood. They're, they are stronger than, uh, than the relationships I have with some of my blood relatives because I am, first and foremost, my identity is rooted in the fact that I am a child of God. I belong to his family. This is my spiritual family. I love my family, my blood family, with all my heart, and I pray all the time for them to come into the spiritual family but my identity is now rooted in the person of Jesus. First John 3, 1 says this. See how very much the Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. He's, he, he rose to give you new life, to give you a new community, and thirdly, he rose to give you a new purpose. The biggest question I think that we can all ask, both Christian and non-Christian, one of the biggest questions that we could ask ourselves is what is the meaning of, come on, fill in the blank, life. What's the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? You know, I recently had a conversation with someone who believes that when we die, everything is just going to black. Now, you don't remember anything before you were born. You're not going to remember anything after you die. It's all just going to fade to black. There's no life or death. So we all, all we have is just here and now. And this person told me that he believes the best thing that we can do is enjoy this life, enjoy one another, because we've only got one shot. Why are we debating on religion and politics, and why don't we just get along? Because we've only got one shot, right? Let's just enjoy each other. And the meaning of life, if you don't believe, if you don't believe in life after death, the meaning of life is simply enjoy it while it lasts, Enjoy it while it lasts. But if this truly is the meaning of life, and there's truly no life after death, then I disagree with this meaning. I think the best thing to do in that case is to live the most selfish life imaginable. Right? If there is no life after death, I'm going to experience all the pleasures possible. I'm going to take as many drugs as I can. I'm going to sleep with as many people as I can. I'm going to surround myself with people that I only like and get along with. Because after all, there's no eternal punishment for what I do, right? And there's no eternal reward for doing good. So it doesn't matter if I hurt people along the way because I'm only responsible for myself. I'm going to really, if I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts, then I'm going all the way, right? 
Now, tell someone born into poverty or an abusive home, enjoy it while it lasts. That's the meaning of your life. Tell someone surrounded by war and violence, enjoy it while it lasts. If that really is the meaning of life, then the meaning of life quickly becomes very trivial when you think of it that way, right? Many people, they might also say that the meaning of life is to be a good person and to do good to others. And I think this is a much nobler cause, right? That we are supposed to be good people and do good to others. We're supposed to be kind to one another. But if that alone is the meaning of life, then it places so much pressure on our behavior, which we're constantly at war with, right? Why do we keep doing the things that we shouldn't do and we can't seem to do the things that we want to do? We're, we're totally at war with our behavior and, and putting on a, a good performance in hopes that one day we'll stand on the cosmic scale and it'll tip in our favor. But if being good and doing good to others is, is the only reason for life, it's the only purpose behind our life, then there's just too much pressure to place on ourselves because we are always going to fail, aren't we? We're never going to be good enough. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he suddenly gave meaning and purpose to every single life. It doesn't matter where you grow up or what hand you've been dealt because there isn't any life that Jesus can't redeem and use for God's glory. It doesn't matter the circumstances that surrounded you. God can redeem that. He can use that. He can change that life. It doesn't matter now that you fail at doing the right thing because you have a Savior who's forgiven you. He encourages you to keep moving forward. He picks you up and brushes you off and says, let's try that again. Let's keep moving forward. Let's keep going in the direction towards God. You see, the purpose that Jesus gave his followers, and I believe that this truly is the meaning to our life, it's to walk hand in hand with our Father and introduce others to this relationship as well. That we now have a privilege to be in constant relationship with the Lord and to introduce people to that relationship as well. Because a relationship with Jesus brings a joy that is unfathomable. It brings a contentment that is unimaginable. There's a peace and a hope. And people in our world need to, need to experience those things. Jesus rose so that we would have access to the Father and be in a constant relation to abide in a relationship with God introduce, and to introduce others to that relationship as well. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is after the resurrection. Jesus says, there is nothing that can hold me down. Death has no hold on me. The demonic have no hold on me. Sickness has no hold on me. I have control over nature. I have control over all things. All authority has been given to me. Then he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, if the, if the resurrection really happened, then it means that you and I have access to a new life. You and I have been given a new spirit that moves towards God, not away. You and I belong to a new community that is rooted in love and forgiveness. That Jesus modeled for us to follow. And you have a new purpose. 
a new mission to fulfill that can only be found in a relationship with Jesus. I'm going to invite Mary to come up as we begin to close this time together. When Jesus was on earth, he claimed to be the son of God on multiple occasions. When he was healing the lame man, what did he say before he said, he he didn't say get up and walk right away, but first he told him, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisee said, who is this man that can forgive sins except God alone? In John 4, he tells the Samaritan woman at the well, I am the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And he even confesses it to the priest when he was on trial. He claimed to be the son of God. And if Jesus claimed to be the son of God, then there's really only three realities. There's only three things that we can believe about Jesus. Number one, either Jesus knew full, either Jesus truly believed that he was the son of God and he really wasn't, which makes him a lunatic, makes him crazy. The second option is that Jesus knew full well he wasn't the son of God and he deceived everybody, which makes him a liar. And the third option is that he really was the son of God. This is what C.S. Lewis, he's best known for his uh, Chronicles of Narnia series, but he, he said this, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he didn't intend to. People in our world would tell us, they might say, oh yeah, Jesus was cool. He was a good guy. He was a great moral teacher. But but listen, that is not an option. Jesus was not just a great moral teacher. He was either a lunatic, he was either a liar, or he really was the Son of God. As we celebrate this Easter Sunday, we all need to answer the question in our hearts and minds, who do I believe Jesus was? Who do I think Jesus is for me personally? Was he the son of God? Did he rise from the dead? And you don't have to check your brains at the door in order to believe. I have placed my faith in Jesus because of the historical evidence that we have of the resurrection and also because I have personally met with the presence of God. Like many of you in this room, you have met with the presence of God. He has spoken to you. He has touched your life. He has done something miraculous that you can't necessarily express into words, but when, uh, but your heart's desire, maybe for your family or your children or for those of you who are close, your heart's desire is for God to encounter them in the same way, for him to meet with I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes. Maybe you are asking yourself this question for the first time this morning. Or maybe you're answering this question differently this morning. Who do I think Jesus was?
if you're in this place and if for the very first time you say, I truly believe he is the son of God. I believe he is Lord and Savior. And I want to accept him in my life. If you've never said that out loud or you've never believed that before, but this morning you're saying, I'm convinced. I believe that Jesus really was the son of God. I want an opportunity to pray with you and connect with you. I'm not going to bring you up on stage or do anything to embarrass you. I just simply want you, as all heads are bowed and eyes are closed, just raise your hand so I can see it right now. If you say, that's me, I I believe Jesus is Lord. I see your hand. I see your hand. Anybody else? Don't let this time pass you by. Raise it up high for me to see. Thank you. I see your hands all over the room. Jesus is Lord. Everybody repeat this after me. Jesus, I love you and I thank you that you've forgiven me. I've failed time and time again. I can't get close to God by myself. And I embrace your forgiveness over my life. Place in me a new spirit. Place me in your family give me a new purpose. Fill me with your Holy Spirit to empower me to do the things that Jesus did. I love you, Jesus, and I believe that you are Lord of my life. And I give you the rest of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. If you raised your hand, I want to invite you to something. We typically do a class called Grow Class on the second Sunday of the month, but today is the second Sunday of the month. And um, we have actually moved our Grow Class to the 23rd. But the best way for us to connect with you is to come to this Grow Class. But also, I would ask, if you wouldn't mind, grab one of those Connect cards that are in the boxes by the doors. Put your name and your email on it and check the box on the back that says, I made a decision for Jesus because I want to reach out to you and I want to make sure that you stay uh, connected, that you know you loved you have a place, uh, and I want to partner with you and celebrate this decision that you made. Can we say thank you to God and just praise God for what? For the decisions that were made this morning. Praise you, Jesus. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray over you. Jesus, I thank you for this resurrection day. What a beautiful day to say yes to you, to acknowledge you as Lord and Savior. God, I pray that your resurrection would not just be something that we celebrate one day out of the year, but it would be something we carry with us in our hearts and our minds because it is the crux of our faith. It is what everything hinges on. And we celebrate you and what you've done. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you, church. I'm so glad that you were here today. Enjoy your friends and your family. Enjoy the rest of your Easter. And we will see you next Sunday.